Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Hammer Show. A week and a half in, Israel and Hamas are at war. The war shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. Thus far, even Joe Biden himself, as it pertains to Gaza at least, has been unequivocally on the side of Israel. Now, there have been some whispers that he may be calling for a ceasefire at some point soon. He has already told Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel not to reoccupy or re-annex the Gaza Strip. On Monday of this week, we saw the Jihad Squad, the Hamas caucus in the U.S. House, the band of moral idiots like Cori Bush, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib already calling for a ceasefire. Let me be very clear about what a ceasefire at this point in the conflict means. A ceasefire at this point calling for the IDF to stop its operations in Gaza is to let a radical Islamic jihadist genocidal medieval cult like Hamas, which sophistry aside is indistinguishable from ISIS. Truly, it is to let them off with complete and utter impunity for the worst pogrom, the worst slaughter of Jews in one day since Adolf Hitler was alive. Perhaps, perhaps that is what these people actually want. We'll get to that a little later in the show. But for the love of God, the United States needs to stand strong right now on the side of Israel. Biden, to his credit, has put two Air Force carrier groups into the eastern Mediterranean. Now, those aircraft carriers, those fleets are not there to get involved. God willing, they will not get involved. No one here wants the United States to actually get involved, no matter what the Jew haters and the anti-Semites say about the Jews controlling foreign policy. Washington takes its foreign policy orders from Tel Aviv. All this that we've heard in these circles for decades. That's not how it works. They're there for deterrence purposes only. All that the United States has to do is to let Israel do its thing. That is seriously all that the Israelis want from the United States right now, is just to let them do their thing. I see all these idiots on Twitter, again, we'll get to this a little later in the show, saying, oh, the neocons, the warmongers are at it again. They see another war in the Middle East. They want American troops. Who the hell is calling for American troops? You know, I saw Lindsey Graham, who has never seen a place on this planet that he hasn't wanted to deploy United States troops. I saw Lindsey Graham say something along those lines, called it a religious or holy war or something along those lines. Mike Pence alluded to it. Look, the extent of actual U.S. personnel on the ground at this point, to my knowledge, is strictly limited to what the U.S. military refers to as JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. It's a highly elite unit and some tier one hostage evacuation specialists. 
bear in mind that as of earlier this week, we now see the IDF estimating that there are 199 hostages held by Hamas in this elaborate Byzantine tunnel system underneath that hellhole that is the Gaza Strip. Among those 199, we do not know the exact number of American citizens, but there are many Americans in there. Of course, roughly 25 Americans have already died. So if you are the kind of person who I see on Twitter who is thumping your chest and saying, America first, baby, let the Jews handle their own thing. Tell me what is America first about letting this medieval Islamist death cult slaughter dozens of American citizens and take more into the tunnels? How is it America first to not give a damn about your own citizens and let a group indistinguishable from ISIS? In fact, Secretary Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense over in Israel, I think it was last week, said that he thought that based on what he saw, the decapitated babies, the children burned alive, the Holocaust survivors wantonly slaughtered, the raping, the pillaging, he said this was even worse than what he saw from ISIS. So that is literally the ask of the United States and the Western world more generally right now is just Stay the hell away and let Israel do its thing. It is not a particularly tall order. It really, really is not. Biden, again, is already starting to go a little little wobbly. He has been generally very good on this thus far. He has been less good on the other pieces of the puzzle. He, He has been good when it comes to the narrow threat of Gaza and the Islamist death cult that is Hamas. He has been less good when it gets to the broader purview. He has not done or said anything that I am aware of when it comes to the elephant in the room, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Back in 1979, when that hellish, fanatical, theocratic Shiite Islamist regime took power in a coup against the Shah in Tehran, that was the last major United States hostage crisis. Well, it should, it should surprise no one that the actor now, Hamas, is essentially an Iran proxy. What has Joe Biden done when it comes to the Iranians? If he said anything, I've missed it. What about the $6 billion in ransom payment that went there recently? Has he affirmatively announced that he's going to finally, once and for all, shelve to the side this ridiculous capitulation that is the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal? Which up until essentially yesterday, they were still talking about possibly getting back into? What about, for that matter, Robert Malley, the Iran point man under both Obama and Biden, whose security clearance was revoked earlier this summer? We now basically know why, thanks to the intrepid reporting of Jay Solomon over at Semaphore, we know that there was a clandestine infiltration of the Obama and Biden administrations called the IEI, the Iran Experts Initiative. Yes, the Iranian regime infiltrated the higher ranks of Obama and Biden. Robert Malley, the point man on negotiating that deal, was essentially surrounded by Iranian regime sycophants. You can't make this stuff up. So what has Biden done when it comes to Iran? What what has he done when it comes to Qatar, which is where the Hamas leadership actually lives? They don't live in the hellhole that is Gaza. They live in the five-star luxury hotels of Doha. 
which after Dubai is one of the most sparkly and glittery cities in the entire Middle East. Qatar was just named a quote-unquote major non-NATO ally last year. What is the U.S. doing about Qatar? I haven't heard a damn thing. In fact, I saw Secretary of State Anthony Blinken sitting down with the emir of Qatar about trying to de-escalate tensions and mediate between Israel and Hamas. You think Qatar can mediate between Israel and Hamas? The guys who are funding Hamas tens of millions of dollars a month? Are you kidding me? Look, that is where it stands right now. I sincerely hope that Prime Minister Netanyahu has the backbone and the fortitude to see this thing through. Enough is enough. No more mowing the lawn. This has to get done at this point. In the meantime, let me tell you, it has been a really, really difficult time. I just got back from Italy, of all places. I was there for a Jewish wedding between a bride and groom, both of whom come from Israeli families. Jewish law and custom on this are unambiguous. We have to go on Uh, amidst tragedy, amidst the blood still being fresh on the slaughter of 1400 plus of our co-religionists. We must go on and party. We raise our glasses to the couple. We wish them a mazel tov and a beautiful, wonderful life together. But it is hard. It has been really, really hard over the past week and a half. I am not going to lie to you. And at this moment right now, all I can say again of the United States and this administration, which thus far has been relatively good, again, relatively good when it comes at least to the narrow issue of Hamas and Gaza, is just stay the hell away, shut the hell up, and let Israel do its job. This has to get done. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. Now, we've known for a very long time that the American Academy, the institutions of higher education in this country have been completely co-opted, corrupted and taken over by radical leftism for a long time to lament such a thing as that would be somewhat trite. It has been covered so many times over the years going back at least as far as God and Man at Yale, William Buckley's book from the 1950s. But it really does seem like the Palestinian issue has become one of, if not the major organizing forces for on-campus leftist radicals. And this past week, among the more depressing things that we have seen over this week, and there's been a lot, unfortunately, to be depressed over, the rise of this sentiment on the American University campus and the failure of any of the putative adults in charge to meaningfully condemn it or at best to condemn it after essentially getting dragged 
for days for not doing so. That has been one of the more depressing elements of all. Look, we've all seen the footage out of Europe. Europe, which following the lead of former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, imported millions and millions of Middle Easterners, many from Syria, Somalia, you know it there. We've all seen the footage of these horrific marches in London, Amsterdam, you know it. Look, I was I was just in Italy. I, w- I was in Milan. I mean, you see it there, too. We've seen it in Europe, but it feels different to see it on the American University campus. Footage at UCLA, one of the most prestigious public universities in the country, home to a large Jewish population. At UCLA, I saw footage last week of hundreds and hundreds of people marching across the main lawn, waving the quote-unquote Palestinian flag, chanting the genocidal annihilationist slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. We've seen this over and over again elsewhere. At Stanford University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world, some students were hanging banners outside their dorm rooms overtly celebrating not just the Palestinian cause, but Hamas itself. The BLM chapter, the Black Lives Matter chapter of Chicago, was organizing a pro-Palestinian rally in the aftermath of this historic slaughter of Jews using the image of the Hamas paraglider. Those paragliders who paraglided in to that overnight music festival, the rave near the Gaza border, mowing down 260. I mean... I literally don't even know what to say when I see stuff like this. At Columbia University, a professor just came out and said that he was with Hamas. They are now calling for his resignation. There's some change.org petition circling. At Harvard University, the single most prestigious university in the world, I would say based on popular sentiment or whatnot, over 30 student groups the typical kind of leftist affinity identity politics student groups jointly signed a statement saying that they put Israel exclusively to blame, hold them exclusively responsible for the slaughter of their own people. Bill Ackman, the billionaire hedge fund manager who is a Harvard alum, in response to this, started circulating a, a petition, or I guess we would say it's not a petition, it's more of a grassroots call, a grassroots movement, to get his fellow CEOs to vow not to hire any of these smug scumbags who are apparently content to go to sleep at night calling for the deliberate and wanton slaughter of Jews. At University of Virginia, their SJP chapter, Students for Justice in Palestine, I mean, they were among the worst. They referred to what happened on October 7th, 2023, a day that will forever live in infamy. They referred to the events of that day as a historic day against the colonizers. And what we're really starting to see here in some ways, we're starting to see how the left's rhetoric over the decades about colonialism, oppressor versus oppressed, all these intersectional buzzwords that are downstream of critical theory, downstream of the very, very worst of the Western Academy. You are starting to see the very clear logic of oppressed versus oppressor, of colonizers versus the colonized, 
and how that leads to not merely looking the other way for genocide, but to actively celebrating it. There was a Yale professor who tweeted, I think she deleted the tweet, but the internet is forever, as we all know. She tweeted, they're settlers, not civilians. This isn't that complicated. Let me translate that to you. Every innocent Israeli living in Israel, I presume she's not even referring just to Jews. I think only roughly 72% of Israelis are actually Jews. There's a very large Arab population, Christians, Druze. Anyone living there is a quote-unquote settler, not a civilian, and therefore a legitimate military target. This is an Ivy League professor literally justifying the mass incineration and decapitation of toddlers, of infants, the raping and pillaging of teenagers. I mean, what the actual hell? Again, like, I was clear-eyed going into college. I knew that the long-term trends were towards just total moral rot. It was not this, this bad when I was there. But this cause, the so-called Palestinian cause, has really become one of the cause celebrities of on-campus leftist radicals. And again, I just want to be very, very clear here about what these people are calling for. They may have been so duped so duped by their peers, by the articles they're reading, the magazine articles, the the chattering class, the MSNBC talking heads, they may have been so duped into believing otherwise. But when they are chanting the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, they are literally calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, which obviously is the world's largest Jewish population. Roughly half of the world's Jews more or less live there. When they fly... That black, red, green, and white Palestinian flag. They, at this point, to come out in the aftermath of this Hamas slaughter of October 7th and to fly that flag, they are no different whatsoever than the people who, after the defeat of Hitler and Nazi Germany, would fly a swastika. There is no daylight whatsoever right now between those two positions. Neoliberal Western idiocy when it comes to immigration has led to the reality where these people are living among us. Again, it's not just in the United States. One of the most harrowing videos over this entire harrowing past week was down under in Sydney, Australia, where at the iconic, iconic opera house there on the steps, you had a huge throng of Muslims They kind of skip past the whole from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. You know, they kind of skip past that whole quasi euphemism. They cut right to the chase. You know what they were chanting down there? Gas the Jews. Gas the Jews. We are surrounded by jihadists. That is the simple reality. The Biden immigration border debacle has led to a shockingly high number of them among us. We have willingly brought the jihad to our shores. This is not merely an on-campus phenomenon. It is absolutely all around us as well. It happens to be the worst on college campuses. I sincerely hope that Bill Ackman's call to not hire any of these scumbags becomes ubiquitous. People need to take a stand on this. This is not 
quote unquote cancel culture. Vivek Ramaswamy is a moron for saying so. This is taking a very, very basic stand and saying that I will not hire people who are the modern day followers of the Nazis. Easy enough. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. As we said earlier, there have been some armchair quarterback idiots on Twitter who are essentially saying that every time that you announce your support for Israel, which should be unambiguous in this particular conflict against a genocidal annihilationist enemy such as this, as Hamas, there are some idiots out there who say that oh, you're just one of those warmongering neocons, or you know, insert your your buzzword. Well, look, anyone who has listened to this show for the past year and a half knows that I am not a neoconservative. I have been vocal, vehement, and consistent on the matter of escalation in the Russia-Ukraine war. I have been a skeptic of American involvement in that particular conflict since the get-go. And I sound like a broken record now when I say that prudent statesmanship when it comes to that particular conflict Russia and Ukraine, I mean, would be oriented not towards escalating, not towards sending more arms and more arms for what appears to be a very fruitless endeavor, but to try to give both parties some sort of agreeable off-ramp, perhaps with mutually agreed upon land swaps or something like that. So then the obvious question is, why is this particular conflict between Israel and Hamas different? It's a longer explanation. The Russia-Ukraine hawks, the people who are all in when it comes to Ukraine, who use the classical kind of neoconservative verbiage of we're defending freedom, we're defending liberty, we're defending Western democracy against authoritarianism, totality. I mean, that really is how you hear the chattering class, the think tank class, all the Beltway foreign policy think tanks, AEI, many folks at Hudson Institute. To be clear, I like some people at Hudson, but this, this is what you hear from outfits like that is that rhetoric. Nikki Haley really is the, is the perfect example of this, right? Nikki Haley framed essentially every foreign policy conflict as one between all out liberty, democracy, blah, 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 and totalitarianism or autocracy. This is what I like to call the World War II fallacy when it comes to foreign policy analysis, whereby you look at a foreign conflict and you see two sides going at it. And you have this one-size-fits-all, oversimplified paradigm where one side has to be the United States, the UK, France, the Allied powers, and the other side, by definition, has to be the Nazis, fascist Italy, and imperial Japan. A.K.A. one side is all-out good, one side is all-out evil. 
my friends, this is not how it works <laughs> in, in the real world. Foreign policy is messy. You know, when it comes to internecine civil war conflicts all over the world and Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, do these same people really want to make it out that there is always, always unambiguously one side that is rooted in the universal principles of John Locke's political theories, of Thomas Jefferson's writing and the Declaration of Independence. And the other side is just Genghis Khan, Putin, Stalin, Hitler, insert your strongman, dictator, fascist thug of choice. It just doesn't hold up. It is a ridiculously oversimplified way of viewing foreign policy. However, many also then make the opposite mistake and saying that it is impossible to draw distinctions. That in a conflict halfway around the world, who are we to say who is actually the good guy and who is the bad guy? Who are we to say whose country or whose people or whose tribe or whatever is actually on the side of the American national interest and whose side is not? This would kind of sort of be the Ron Paul position taken to its logical conclusion. I don't want to straw man Ron Paul too hard, but that's more or less kind of what I think many Ron Paul acolytes would say. Basically, the kind of folks who would oppose U.S. intervention in even World War II of all wars, arguably even after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Both of these worldviews are ridiculously oversimplified, impractical in real life, and ultimately they are equally naive. Neoconservatism, the idea that we should be marching around the world, bombing people who do not subscribe to our idiosyncratic version of Western, Lockean, Jeffersonian, Madisonian liberalism, and trying to put in new governments, regime change, build it up from the top down, they are just as delusional, if not more so, than the people who say that America can simply retreat and have nothing whatsoever to do all over the world. You know, sometimes when it comes to the latter group, like, like the truly, truly hardcore isolationists, I, I actually wonder how far they're willing to take their own stance. The United States actually has not just military bases all over the world. I mean, we store nuclear weapons all over the world. You know, on my, way, on my way back from Italy, we had a layover in Istanbul, of all places. The U.S. has a ton of nuclear weapons at Insulik Air Base, not in Istanbul, but in Anatolia, in the continental Asian part of Turkey, which is a little problematic on its own because Erdogan, the Islamist strongman in Turkey, is an unreliable ally at best. He's actually quite friendly with Hamas. But we'll hold that aside. The point is that the U.S. even has nuclear weapons all over the world. I mean, do do the true isolationists literally want to just get rid of, of even that? So both of these positions are just totally unsustainable. The point here, and really, this actually was the Trump doctrine. You know, Michael Anton, the former National Security Council speechwriter, or Claremont Institute guy, I I know Michael in, in real life pretty well. He had a great essay for a foreign policy magazine in 20, I think it was 2019 and 2018 around then, called The Trump Doctrine, basically laying out what this third way, this prudent middle ground is between the 
gun-toting neocons and the quixotic, not living in real world isolationists. And that basic third way, which some people also refer to as Jacksonian, this is based on a famous Walter Russell Mead essay from a magazine called The National Interest from the 1990s, basically trying to say that this is the Andrew Jackson impulse. Tom Cotton would be a slightly more hawkish version of a, of a Jacksonian. But the point here is that this third way, this middle ground Trump, doc, Trump doctrine, Jacksonian, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, is not based on ideological abstractions like everyone should be universally liberal or we should just duck our heads in the sand and not do anything. It is a foreign policy based on realism and what the United States can realistically hope to achieve given the basic economic realities of resource scarcity as well. Most importantly, not necessarily as to what is morally true, although that can play a role for sure, but most importantly, what is best for the United States national interest. Well, I would argue to you that when it comes to Israel, which has been one of America's very closest allies since the founding of Israel in May of 1948 America, famously, President Harry Truman was the very first world leader in the world to recognize Israel as a country, I believe was 11 minutes after David Ben-Gurion declared it independent in May of 1948. America and Israel have been very close for a very long time. In many ways, especially given what we discussed earlier about the metastasis, the spread of the cancer that is the global jihad in the streets of London, Amsterdam, on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, on American college campuses all over getting in through our poorest southern border. Who the hell knows how many are just getting in while we're not deporting them? Amidst that reality, the U.S.-Israel relationship is actually only more important. Israel is the West's canary in the coal mine when it comes to the jihad because they are there. They're surrounded by it on virtually all sides. Hezbollah up north, of course, Hamas in Gaza, Iran, the number one state sponsor of global jihad, is not terribly far away and is probably looking for an an opportune moment to get involved in this current conflict, God forbid. I certainly hope that they do not. And then you hold that consideration, and then you look at the other side here. What is the other side here? The other side is a radical Islamist death cult, again, as we, as we said earlier, that is essentially synonymous with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or the worst of the worst when it comes to radical Sunni Islam. They are not ultimately out to annihilate Israel and kill all the Jews in the world, although they absolutely are out to do both of those things. They want to kill all the infidels, or what they call infidels. Yes, again, the Jews are the canary in the coal mines. Christians are 100% right there in that pecking order with them. They have a particular loathing of the Jews more than anyone else. But they absolutely loathe non-Jews as well. So the U.S. national interest, when it comes to who to side with in this particular conflict... And then you can start to kind of bring in some basic moral considerations as well. Obviously, America was founded as, I'm not going to call it a Judeo-Christian country. It was really founded as a Christian country. 
But if you go back and you look at the writings and the thoughts of the American founders, they were deeply inspired, actually, by the Hebrew Bible. Do you know what Benjamin Franklin wanted to make the national seal? He proposed that the national seal be Moses parting the Red Sea during the exodus from Egypt. Abraham Lincoln, the greatest president from my vantage point, the greatest spokesman, orator in American history, he referred to America as a, quote, almost chosen people. Clearly there, he was summoning the language of the Jews as the original chosen people. America, when you start to factor in this history and this moral connection, in addition to the obvious and clear national interest benefits of standing side by side with Israel here when it comes to quelling and containing Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, all these actors who seek not just to eradicate Israelis, but Americans as well, these fanatical, fanatical Muslims who are chanting death to Israel, death to America. You want to get there on your America first high horse and tell me that this is not clear? That you're a quote-unquote neocon for saying, no, get off the sidelines and choose a side here? Even if choosing a side, as we said earlier, just amounts to just shutting up and not doing anything? Give me a break. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Clemson University students march on campus after tampons were quietly removed from the men's bathroom. Not the women's, but the men's bathroom. So around 50 students attended the protest after they were quietly taken away when Clemson College Republicans slammed their presence on social media. First of all, um, as someone who went to college in North Carolina, Clemson University, at least when I was there, was not a, a leftist hellhole. I mean, this was not an Oberlin college. Clemson University is a public school and a major football school in historically what is a very red Bible believing state, Clemson University. So the fact that we have gender ideologues like that who are are apparently all throughout Clemson University of all schools and they are marching on campus after tampons are taken away from the bathroom of the biological sex who, by definition of what it means to be a man, has no use whatsoever for these products except in the delusional fantasies of those who would have you believe that you can snap your fingers and somehow announce that you can be a woman, really does, I think, show just how pervasive this complete and utter moral idiocy, lack of common sense cosplaying fantasies in real life, whatever you want to call it. It really just underscores how pervasive it is. To kind of circle back to what we were talking about earlier on the show about the now ubiquity of the so-called Palestinian cause on the American University campus, I would propose a very simple short to midterm conclusion for this particular issue, which is that you college students should shut the hell up and adults should stop paying attention to you. Bud Light sales continue to fall 30%. So the Beer Business Daily publisher, Harry Schumacher, has noted that the situation has actually worsened since the initial controversy. And this decline raises the alarming possibility of some consumers never returning to the brand. Well, to this, I just want to 
clap my hands and say, bravo, guys. I mean, this is the marketplace at work, right? Bud Light does something absolutely stupid, absolutely stupid when it comes to Dylan Mulvaney and this special edition can, a total FU to their consumer base who are disproportionately working class, blue collar Americans, typically white males, I've had oftentimes probably white, non-college educated males. And they have now paid the price for it. You know, in many ways, this has actually been a very good year for conservatives when it comes to some of these culture war issues. Ron DeSantis continues to win his fight with the Walt Disney Company, the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger, the uh, former and now current again CEO has announced that they're not going to get into these cultural issues much anymore. Target continues to hurt as well. As far as the stock price is concerned, we've had any we've had multiple actually conservative leaning country songs that have really kind of hit the top of the charts, whether it was Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town or Anthony Oliver's Rich Men North of Richmond. And now this and the fact that they are now saying that some Bud Light drinkers may never, ever come back to the brand again. It just shows you that. One of the best solutions to the problem of woke corporate America is just to use your power as a consumer. You really do have that power. I actually find this story nothing less than inspiring. So bravo to you, beer consumers out there. Muslim parents objecting to LGBTQ picture books used at Minneapolis charter school. So the parents here of up to 200 Muslim students say they may withdraw from the Da Vinci Academy, that's the name of the school, over the use of books with gay, lesbian, transgender, and so forth characters. So, I mean, this is quite funny, right? I mean, this is the kind of the classical situation where if you're on the left, what the hell are you supposed to do? I mean, you're emphatically pro-LGBTQ, plus, minus, blah, 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 whatever we're calling it, but you also have made a deliberate decision, if you're on the intersectional left, to mollycoddle Muslim Americans and to try to paint this ridiculous and absurd notion of Islam as a religion of peace and how they're kind of just a deeply oppressed minority holding aside the fact that the overwhelming majority, I think roughly 60% of of religiously motivated hate crimes in America, according to FBI data year in and year out, by the way, are not against Muslims. They're against Jews, but I digress. So this, but anyway, this is one of those situations where if you're on the left here, what are you supposed to do? I I think back to Linda Sarsour, who is a character that has gone away. Linda Sarsour was the darling of the left. She was the women's March person. She was kind of putting herself out there positing herself as some sort of arch-feminist icon. Linda Sarsar has a long tweet history of openly defending Sharia law. She had a, she had a tweet from years ago, basically, and, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, basically, oh, Sharia law is actually really good. You should see the policy that it has for your credit cards and if you default on your payments. Well, you know, honey, tell me what Sharia law says about women's rights. You know, again, I was just in Europe. I got back from there. Tell me what Sharia law says about the hijab and the niqab. I got Italian food at a restaurant in Milan Saturday night, I guess. It was Saturday night. You know who was next to me? Literally one table away? A religious Muslim family with the niqab on, which is, is that that's a black veil where you literally just see the woman's eyes. Is that feminist? Anyway, that is the paradox of the modern left and the complete idiocy of the entire paradigm of so-called intersectionality. Senator Bob Menendez is accused of acting as a foreign agent. So Bob Menendez, he's now facing an additional charge of acting as a foreign agent. He has a history, somewhat ironically, or perhaps not ironically, of opposing reforms to FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. 
it's starting to look really bad for Bob Menendez. You're starting to see some of his really more of his colleagues start to call for him to resign there. A lot of that is kind of cynical and self-serving from Democrats. They realize that Menendez has now made that blue state politically vulnerable and potentially a, a winnable state for Republicans there. I personally think that this looks very bad. I, you know, you see some people on our side, some kind of right-leaning commentators who I've seen basically saying, oh, due process, trust the process, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Well, that's not really the case here, right? I mean, innocent until proven guilty, obviously, when it comes to the legal proceedings, when it comes to the actual indictment, the allegations. But innocent until proven guilty is a legal framework. It's not a political framework. It has nothing to do whatsoever with the decision as to whether he should resign from his seat. Given these charges, I have essentially no sympathy for Bob Menendez. I mean, uh, some in the the pro-Israel community like him because he has been better on that issue than many other Democrats. I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, how much mileage can you get out of that? The guy looks really, really, really corrupt. I think that he should get out of there. Finally, Biden's dog commander is out of the White House. So the German Shepherd, this is Biden's dog, been involved in a series of altercations. He bit a Secret Service officer. So this, this went down maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago or so. We haven't talked about it on the show quite yet there. You know, it's part of a line, actually, of events that I've noticed where Joe Biden doesn't actually act until he is shamed to do so by the New York Times or some other liberal media outlet or TV network that he happens to hold in high esteem. So the only reason that Joe Biden kicked his dog out of the White House is because the New York Times wrote an article about it. Similarly, Joe Biden did not acknowledge that Hunter Biden's child was his grandchild until the very progressive columnist Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times wrote a column basically calling him out for it. So we see this pattern of how Joe Biden really should be acting according to what is proper, according to what basic norms, decorum, propriety. In this case, dude, you're like the head of the White House. You want, I, I mean, I, I would think like a bare minimum thing you should do for your employees to make sure that they can actually get in and out the door without getting bit by a fairly ferocious dog. But again, the man just has to be constantly shamed into acting. That does not speak particularly well of Joe Biden's character. But then again, more, more broadly speaking, the entire notion of good old Uncle Joe, working class Joe from Scranton, has been essentially a pure work of fiction from the get-go. He is not a good person. And this incident, while seemingly a minor one, I think does underscore that unfortunate reality. <laughs> 